0: Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi.
1: Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. I'm Tom Salemi. Anyone attending past OIS events will recognize John Norris. The managing director from Silicon Valley Bank comes armed with an intimidating stack of PowerPoint slides that look like they have the potential to put a charging rhino to sleep. But Norris definitely leads the entire audience through the charts, graphs, and bullet points, leaving everyone in attendance a great deal smarter than they were than when he started. We we're lucky to have John Norris give OIS podcast his undivided attention recently. He shared his insights on IPOs, MAs, and gave us a sneak peek into what he'll be including in his annual report that's due to come out next month. We won't have any PowerPoint slides to share, but I can guarantee you'll learn something. Let's have a listen. Hi, John. Welcome to the OIS podcast.
2: Thanks, Tom. Great to be here.
1: Well, your uh, your report at uh, OIS in Chicago, I thought was one of the, the high points. Uh, it's really uh, something to watch you deliver that much uh, data in, uh, in just over 10 minutes. And uh, anyone looking at the video on uh, OIS.net will see the time at 10 minutes and 36 seconds. But uh, I think there's probably thirty seconds or so of intro and and such. So you were, you were right on the money. Uh, what's the uh, what's the secret to uh, to making a presentation like that? Is that the skill you've already always had, or is it something you've had to develop?
2: Yeah, you know, I've, I've sort of polished it over time. But in the end, the idea being, <clears throat> in, in situations like like uh, OIS, we try and get as much information out to people in as short a time as possible with the idea that people can come back and ask questions later and sort of get more data where they need it. But yeah, I think in the end, it's it's having some pretty simple, clear slides and, and sort of sticking to what we think is sort of actionable information to, to deliver to folks. And I think that that worked out well.
1: Yeah, and and the, the backstory to that was you had actually flown, flown to Boston the night before, right, to make a presentation and then flew back in time for your lunchtime presentation in Chicago. So.
2: Yeah, it was a little harrowing because that was uh, during the time where there was a fire at the at the airport. And so there's a lot of flights that have been delayed. But, yeah, I flew. I had a event uh, the night before as part of OIS with some of the speakers and then flew to Boston that night. Got up at, you know, I think six in the morning, Boston time, delivered a, a quick speech and then hopped on, a, on an airplane and got to OIS just in time. So it all worked out. Thank goodness. Because I had a. Uh, a colleague who was ready to pitch in if if need be, but he definitely didn't want to try and deliver all this information in ten minutes.
1: yeah, we were talking about that as we as we watched the clock anyway you uh, your report in uh in October went over your annual report for for the previous year, uh and I think you generally issue your reports in the summertime, right
2: yeah, although uh this year I just released a report in january uh, right before the j p Morgan conference and uh and that that report was designed to give a quick overview of what happened in 2014 uh, and compare it to some of the previous years with the idea that a, a more comprehensive report is going to be coming. And instead of doing it in the summer this year, I'm going to really try and get it out in March because I just feel like it's, you know, to the extent I can do that, it's much more actionable to people to to look at that a little bit earlier in the year.
1: Oh, okay, I was going to ask them what what are you working on right now with the timing is the summer, but uh since it's not anymore, I'm guessing you're up to your uh up to your shoulders in, in writing and analyzing.
2: Yeah, definitely um and it's going to be similar to to what I've done in the previous years, although I really want to try and look at some of uh the the big exits that we're seeing in both device and biotech and try and stratify those into quartiles and trying to understand like what what's the what does the top quartile of, of exits really look like in terms of time to exit and capital in, um, and as well as indication, to try and get a feeling for what the real top performers in the, in the industry are looking like since 2009. I think that's gonna be an interesting part of the report this year.
1: I look forward to seeing that. What, what were some of your preliminary findings about 2014?
2: Well, 2014 was a good year. Um, If if you look at device uh, in the previous two years, 2012 and 13, you saw a slight decline in M&A activity Uh, looking at the the data points I do, which is keeping it at about $50 million up front in order to hit my data, uh, my my data sheet. So the previous two years were on a decline in 2014, you saw a jump back up to 16 exits, which was good to see. And actually the dollar value both on the upfront and the total value of those transactions went up as well. And if you combine that with some healthy uh, IPO activity, you know, device was looking pretty good. Uh, on the biotech side, you, know, you had what everyone thought was a red-hot IPO market in 2013. And by my count, there were about 32, 33 venture-backed biopharma companies that went public in 2013. And then 2014 just basically doubled that with 66 venture-backed biopharma IPOs. And just so it went from a, a red hot to sort of a white hot market. And I think, you know, uh, valuations were a little bit down for the IPOs for Biopharma as well as the dollars raised, but that's not really a surprise when you see you know a doubling of IPOs. So um, I think when you look at the total returns back to the sector, and even if you apply, you know, conservative estimates to, you know, milestones to be earned as well as, let's say, sort of uh, conservative estimate of what investors might get from IPOs. it was still just an unbelievable year of somewhere around 22 billion dollars in potential returns back to investors in 2014 alone. So a really good year in life sciences where you saw you know the uptick in IPOs both in biopharma and device and also in tools and diagnostics uh, really you know paving the way for what we hope is going to be uh, another good year in 2015.
1: No, you hinted at at uh, in Chicago that maybe there'd be a slowdown at, at, in IPOs. Uh, are you still feeling that way on the device side? We're certainly seeing, seeing a great deal of action. Uh, some companies that you know, don't have necessarily strong revenues or any revenues are, are able to go public. So it seems like there's a lot more uh, speculative interest in in devices.
2: Well, I think I think the the device window is still active. With a with a number of companies with fairly substantial or even small but growing revenues looking for an IPO, I think the device sector will be strong in 2015 absent some macroeconomic factor that affects everything out there. You know, device companies that were able to weather the storm of the tough financing years in 2009 and 10 are now some of the most attractive companies out there, examples being some that went out public in the last couple of years of like Nevro and Trivascular and Intersect ENT. I would be surprised to see significant traction in companies with very little or no revenue. Unless acquirers start buying even more early-stage pre-revenue device companies, I think the appetite for early-stage device IPOs will be more one-off rather than commonplace. And on the, on the biotech side, yeah, I just can't see the continuing of the white-hot IPO window of 2014. I think uh, a number closer to 2013, which was a really good – wide open IPO window is going to be more the story than, than something close to 2014. So, you know, somewhere maybe around 40 IPOs instead of 66 would probably would be my prediction for 2015 for biopharma IPOs. Sounds great.
1: All right, well, we're going to take a quick break and uh, we'll be right back.
0: The Ophthalmology Innovation Summit at ASCRS is the premier platform showcasing both public and private companies with cutting-edge surgical technologies. Applications to present are now being accepted through February 27th. Apply online at ois.net forward slash application.
1: And we're back. Uh, In your presentation, again, which is uh, available on ois.net, if you're looking for it, just type in Norris and it'll, it'll pop up. Uh, one thing you look at that I found interesting is you look at dollars raised by venture firms versus dollars invested. And, and you note that the two are sort of coming closer uh, together. The the, the lines are, are, I don't know if they ever, will ever meet or if they or should ever meet, but they're getting closer. And, and you you say the ideal ratio of, uh, I think, dollars uh, uh, invested uh, versus dollar raised is, is 1.3 to 1.6. Uh, and uh, how do you arrive... At that figure, and and is uh, a sort of a one point three to one point six ratio ultimately sustainable. Uh, and uh, and lastly, does that ratio reflect uh, dollars coming from other non venture sources, or uh, is that are you only talking about venture sources when you give those figures?
2: Yeah, a lot a lot of good questions there. And yes, it seems unsustainable, but the numbers that I'm referring to don't factor in. One, the the corporate venture investment, and two, crossover investors. So uh, corporates have been very active in early stage biopharma companies over the last few years, participating at about 30% of all new Series A deals, as well as being active in more later stage companies and device. While overall the corporate venture investment in these rounds are typically smaller than the lead investor puts in, we have seen a number of these situations recently where the corporate is the co-lead and putting in an equal amount of capital. In addition, uh, crossover investors have been super aggressive, investing into potential IPO companies in biopharma. The top 10 most active crossover investors have participated in more than 40 separate private venture-backed financings as a lead investor over the last two years. And that's actually going to be in my new uh, article that I put out in March. And a lot of those companies have already gone public and feeding the success of those investors and spurring even more late stage private financings by those folks. So both of those groups add in capital that helps sort of close the gap between the invested capital number and the fundraised capital number.
1: That's excellent. No, it's it's nice to see the returns, to see some venture fundraising success. What are you seeing on the ophthalmology in the ophthalmology area? Rather, looking again at the data you presented before, uh, it's an area where there is a lot of company creation. uh, And noted that at least I think in devices, ophthalmology was one of the one of the areas where the most companies had been started. That in orthopedics, which I found kind of surprising. What, what are the traits of uh, ophthalmology companies that help explain why these companies are being created and why it's a, a good area for, for entrepreneurs to pursue new ventures?
2: You know, what, one reason is that on the exit side, the device private ophthalmology exits have been very healthy with the highest overall deal average of about 515 million of, uh, of the three exits that happened since 2009. And it has a healthy five X multiple on the upfront payments as well. I think the other reason is that the market is huge and not going away. Now, I think there's a great area to invest in. Now, I don't have specifics on the companies, but it was major VC firms that were involved in these uh, the, these companies uh, raising rounds over the last couple of years. However, the data I have so far in 2014 shows a little bit of decline in new ophthalmology venture financings and a new Series A. You know, it's not necessarily indicative of a trend. It's just what the data says. And I think um yeah that also goes back to who are the acquirers and what are they doing right now. Um but I believe that ophthalmology will continue to get strong investment interest in both device and biopharma over the next few years.
1: And, and is that dip that you you're early in tracking was that on the biopharma side as well or or just device?
2: Yeah, actually when I when I looked at where the the new investments as well as the new so new investments by new investors regardless around as well as new series A um, actually, I was seeing more company creation on the biopharma side versus device side. But again, you know, that's a, a one-off on a, on a 12 to 24-month period, and that certainly can change because you did see a lot of activity in 2012 in ophthalmology as well as 2013. So, you know, those companies are now running around and not necessarily raising their next round maybe till, till 2015. So, you know, it could just be sort of a little bit of a, of a quiet period. But yeah, I am seeing a decline, and it's and it's a little bit more pronounced on the device side than the biopharma side.
1: And you mentioned Convidian and Medtronic uh, in their merger earlier. What uh, what is consolidation? What impact will consolidation and ophthalmology have on uh, potential exits uh, for investors in op- in the area?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think I think it just goes down back to. Yeah, the more acquirers that you have out there, the more options you have to engage and um, to to get potentially better returns on your on your exit value, as well as potentially getting acquired earlier. And the less folks that you have uh, means that that typically these companies have to become more later stage and and get into commercialization on the device side and on the on the drug side at least get into. You know phase three trials or 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 somewhere on the later side of development in order to get acquirer interest. I think it's just you know less acquirers out there mean it's it's tougher and tougher to get acquired and it typically pushes companies uh, getting acquired to be a little bit a little more later stage. so you know not necessarily uh, a great response for all the folks uh, that come to OIS, but that's sort of what we're seeing out in the market right now.
1: I guess we're all long-term uh, investors or you know, have long-term involvement in this sector so you got to take right. some of the dips with some of the the peaks.
2: Again, yeah, exactly and it's all it's all cyclical, right? I mean, a, a lot of these things uh can be can be cycles that can be short or long, but I I can't imagine that, you know, all the shakeup that we're seeing in sort of the ophthalmology acquirer world is going to be so long standing that it's going to really affect long-term ability for these companies to get acquired. Great
1: and final question. Uh, I know you're early in on the compilation of your new report, but is there anything that uh, that popped out at you right away that uh, you were surprised to see, and that we'll be surprised to read about in a couple of months?
2: Um, I think you know one thing that uh, was surprising to me was just the the large amount of crossover investors that have been so active in biopharma. I think that's one thing, and when we actually look at the companies that they. Invested in in the last uh, private round before public, and a number of those companies that went public, it's pretty it's pretty surprising to see how successful that they've been. Um, obviously, they're investing into a white hot IPO market, so that's you know that's that's one uh, one reason for their success. But the success begets success, and so I think we'll continue to see strong activity by crossover investors in 2015. The other thing was sort of the emergence of. Of CNS as a as a hotter area in biotech, it sort of had a little bit of a lull in 2013, but in 2014 there were a number of um, acquisitions, but also a ton of uh, IPOs. I think there were 10 different IPOs in the CNS uh, sector in for for biopharma. And I think on the device side, we continue to see a lot of interest in neuro. Um, I don't think that's necessarily surprising to any of the the folks that that. Uh, follow the device sector. But again, a, a really good area that's attracting a lot of investment and acquirer interest. And
1: coincidentally, that's an area where there seems to be some agnostic qualities where a, a CNS biopharma company might have interest in a CNS or a neuro device. So um, absolutely, sounds like the sector's just white hot. John, thanks for the time today. Appreciate the uh, the insights.
2: Absolutely, a pleasure. Thank you so much, Tom.
1: Thanks, John Norris, for joining us on the OIS podcast. We look forward to seeing your next report at OIS at AAO in November. And we look forward to seeing many of you at OIS at Assers in April. Please make sure you go to ois.net to register. We'll see you in San Diego.
0: Join the Surgical Ophthalmology Innovators on April 16th in San Diego for OIS and ASCRS, where you will see and meet the leading companies and clinicians. The now expanded program features a showcase of emerging technologies to treat the most pressing anterior segment diseases, while also including plenary talks and discussions around business, regulatory, and finance. Hear what Jim Mazo has to say. I would tell you that OIS is now the come-to meeting in ophthalmology. And the reason is, is you're able to bring industry, practitioners, innovators in one audience discussing not what's happening today, but what's happening tomorrow. Very rarely do you have a meeting where you're discussing the future of an industry. You're usually talking about the presence. And that's why people come to this meeting, because they're hearing about things today that will impact our industry tomorrow. Visit OIS.net and sign up today.